Hello and welcome. This is Michael Lannis, and you are listening to episode 44 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Voskud 1. After Valentina Tereshkova's successful flight aboard Vostok 6 in June of 1963, there was not a definitive plan on what to do next. There was an existing request made to the Soviet government to build an additional 10 Vostoks, but that request had been reduced from 10 to 4. In July 1963, Chief Designer Korolev laid out plans for using these extra spacecrafts. The plan called for a dog flight to high altitude that would last 10 days, an unmanned solo flight lasting 8 days, and a group flight lasting 10 days. These additional Vostok missions were intended to be a stopgap measure until the Soyuz would be available, supposedly at the end of 1964. The problem was the additional four Vostoks would not be ready until mid-1964. But the new Vostok capsules would be capable of carrying two cosmonauts instead of just one. Korolev named the program Voskud, which means sunrise in Russian. He was also working on a new and powerful version of his R-7 that had a highly capable upper stage. The new second stage increased the payload capacity from 5,000 kilograms to 7,000 kilograms. However, there was another factor involved. Premier Khrushchev was not willing to wait until Soyuz for another space first. Khrushchev believed there could be no final victories in the race for space propaganda. He knew the U.S. was working on Project Gemini, which would carry two astronauts into space in 1965. So, as a means to upstage the U.S., Khrushchev ordered Chief Designer Korolev to fit three cosmonauts into the Voskhod spacecraft that was designed for two. While the Vostok program was dedicated more toward understanding the effects of space travel and microgravity on the human body, Voskhod's two flights were more aimed toward spectacular first. The objective of Voskhod 1 was to beat the U.S. Project Gemini to put the first multi-man crew in orbit. Adding a third cosmonaut presented several technical problems, but weight was not one of them. Korolev's new R-7, also known as 11A57, would handle the extra weight of one cosmonaut with ease. The real problem was fitting three cosmonauts into a space that was designed for two cosmonauts. Vostok's principal engineer, Konstantin Fyoktistov, had opposed the conversion of Vostok to Voskud, but he had changed his mind when Korolev promised to include him in the flight crew. Fyoktistov now proposed to fit three men into a Voskud capsule by removing much of the safety equipment. First, there was no room for spacesuits. If the cabin lost pressure, the crew would die. Next, unlike Vostok and later Soyuz, Voskud had no launch abort system or escape tower, which meant that the crew 
lacked any means of escape from a malfunctioning launch vehicle. And finally, there would be no ejection seats. The crew would land inside the capsule instead of ejecting and parachuting down. So if the capsule hit the ground at a high velocity, the crew could be seriously injured or killed. To make the mission survivable, a solid-fueled braking rocket was added to the parachute lines to provide for a softer landing at touchdown. Airdrop tests were carried out during the summer of 1964 to verify the design of the parachute and the soft landing system. Initially, the test went well. But starting on August 29th, problems with jettisoning the parachute hatch appeared. An error in the circuit design caused the hatch not to release during a test in early September and the capsule was destroyed. The problem was corrected and a final drop test with Korolev present just nine days before the Voskhod flight on October 3rd cleared the system for flight. Another safety feature was a solid-fueled retro rocket added to the top of the descent module. It could be used to deorbit if the main retro rocket failed. The original Vostok capsules did not need this feature because the Vostok capsule would naturally decay from orbit within 10 days, but the relatively lightweight Voskhod was well below the 11A57 booster's lift capacity, meaning that it launched into a much higher orbit and would not decay as quickly. Another challenge was the seating arrangement for three cosmonauts instead of two. After the ejection seats were removed, three crew couches were added to the interior, but they had to be mounted at a 90-degree angle to that of the normal crew position. However, the position of the in-flight controls was not changed, so the crew had to crane their heads 90 degrees to see the instruments on the control panel. Now let's turn to the men who would be flying the Voskhod 1. The original prime crew of cosmonauts for Voskhod 1 was Boris Volyanov, Georgi Kates, and Boris Yegorov was rejected just three days before the scheduled launch date. Once again, politics played a role in the new crew's selection. Various groups each wanted their own representatives for the flight. Korolev wanted his engineers to become cosmonauts. He believed that spacecraft designers should fly in their own vehicles, and he had promised Fyoktistov, that he could be on the flight. The Soviet Air Force agreed to a crew composed of a military pilot, an engineer, and a doctor. So they selected Vladimir Komarov as the pilot, Fyoktistov as the engineer, and Yegorov, a medical doctor who used his father's Politburo connections as the doctor. Now some background on the cosmonauts. Vladimir Komarov was born in Moscow on March 16, 1927, where he grew up along with his sister Matilda. His father was a laborer who worked at various low-paying jobs to support the family. 
1935, Komarov began his formal education in the local elementary school. At school, he got good marks and was fond of mathematics, but despised writing compositions. In 1941, when World War II broke out, Komarov was in a village where he usually spent summers. He earned his living there working on a collective farm until 1942, when at the age of 15, he entered the first Moscow Special Air Force School to pursue his dream of becoming an aviator. In the Air Force School, he studied geometry, zoology, a foreign language, physics, and, of course, the fundamentals of flying. In 1945, Komarov graduated with honors. Graduation Day coincided with Victory in Europe Day. His mother told him, The war is over, son. Perhaps you don't have to fly anymore. But Komarov was already hooked on flying, and he wanted to be a test pilot. In 1946, Komarov completed his first year of training at Chikolov Higher Air Force School in Borisk Oglebesk in Voronezh Oblast. He then completed his training at the A.K. Serov Military Aviation College in Batask. In 1949, he received his pilot's wings and a commission as a lieutenant in the Soviet Air Force. He was now a fighter pilot, but he kept on studying. He was set on being a test pilot, and that required knowledge of engineering. Komarov married in October 1950. He was promoted to senior lieutenant in 1952, and he was later assigned as the chief pilot of the 486th Regiment of the 279th Fighter Air Division in Pyrrhic Akpate region. Komarov continued to fly in that position until 1954, and then he enrolled in an engineering course at the Zhukovsky Air Force Engineering Academy. In 1959, Komarov was promoted to the rank of Senior Engineer Lieutenant. Later that year, he achieved his goal of becoming a test pilot at the Central Scientific Research Institute at Chikolovsky. In September of 1959, Komarov was promoted to Engineer Captain and invited to participate in the selection process for cosmonaut candidates, along with approximately 3,000 other pilots. He spent the next three weeks undergoing rigid medical checkups. The slightest flaw in his health was reason enough to be taken off the list, but he was accepted as one of only 20 candidates for Air Force Group 1. He began his training with fellow students Gagarin, Titov, Popovich, and Baikovsky. Although eminently qualified, Komarov was not chosen in the top six candidates because he did not meet the age, height, and weight restrictions specified by Chief Designer Korolov. If the criteria had been different, Komarov, who was very intelligent, would have been in the Vanguard Six. Shortly after beginning his training, Komarov was hospitalized for a minor operation in May 1960. This delayed his cosmonaut physical training for five months. 
After that time, he resumed training and was scheduled as a backup for Popovich. However, during a regular workout in the centrifuge, the doctors detected an irregularity in his cardiogram. Ordinarily, this disturbance of the heartbeat has practically no ill effects, but to a cosmonaut, it meant the end of his career. Komarov was removed from cosmonaut training. But he was determined to fly in space. He proceeded to prove that he was physically fit. After another rigid medical examination, he was pronounced fit, except for the slight irregularity with his heartbeat, and the doctors refused to clear him for flight. So Komarov appealed first to one, then to another top scientist. The command held a top-level council, and the decision was made that Komarov could be sent into space. By July 1964, only seven cosmonauts remained eligible for the Voskhod crew, after some of them had been disqualified on medical grounds. On July 6th, Komarov was named as the commander of the backup crew for Voskhod 1. After much heated debate over several months about the selection of the crew between Nikolai Kamanin and Sergei Korolov, Komarov was named as the prime crew commander on October 4, 1964, by the State Commission, just eight days before its scheduled launch. The next crew member, the doctor, Boris Yegorov, was born November 26, 1937, in Moscow. Yegorov's father was a prominent heart surgeon and his mother an ophthalmologist. From an early age, Yegorov was interested in the sciences for a utilitarian purpose. His bedroom was cluttered with push buttons and levers. He could switch on the lights and the radio from his bed. The drawers of his desk opened and closed by themselves. As a teenager, Yegorov even constructed his own television set. But he eventually decided to pursue a medical career. In his first year at college, he also became interested in physics. Together with other students, he designed and constructed new medical equipment. Yegorov eventually decided to specialize in space medicine. He graduated from the Medical Institute the same year that Gagarin orbited the Earth. He had met Gagarin in his sixth year of medical school when he worked as a laboratory assistant at a research institute. There he had seen Gagarin spin around in the centrifuge and break into a sweat in the heat chamber. Yegorov graduated from the first Moscow Medical Institute in 1961. When he learned that a doctor would be needed in space to observe the other members of the crew and study his own reactions, Yegorov used his qualifications and his father's political influence to be selected for the flight of Voskhod 1. And now the engineer, Konstantin Fyoktistov. Fyoktistov was born on February 7, 1926. Since he was a child, he had wanted to be a cosmonaut. One day, his elder brother Boris brought home a book called Interplanetary Journeys. 
They read it together and argued about future flights to the moon, Mars, and Venus. To Fiat Tistoff, all this seemed perfectly simple. He only wondered why people with such exciting possibilities remained on Earth. When he was about 10 years old, Fyodor Tiskov realized that in order to be able to figure out the design of a spacecraft and to understand Tiakovsky formula, he would have to study physics and mathematics, then go to college and perhaps take up a postgraduate course, a regrettable but necessary delay. The youngster sat down and did some figuring. By his calculations, he would be flying to the moon in 1964. World War II broke into his life when he was 16. The German army was advancing toward the Volga. The front was rapidly approaching Voronezh, where he lived. The Soviet army was retreating. Fyodor mother gathered up a few things and, with her son, joined the stream of refugees. At a village where they stopped to rest, Fyodor ran away. He met a group of Russian soldiers, one of them who remembered seeing him at the recruiting office trying to enlist. The soldier told him, Come along, we'll make you a scout. On the morning of July 7, 1942, 16-year-old Konstantin Fyodor crossed the front line. The following day, he returned to his unit with his first information and was commended by the lieutenant colonel. Fyodor luck held out. He returned safe and sound from many other operations. But on his last assignment, Fyodor was not alone. With him was a boy two years his junior. They crossed the river in the dead of night, and in the daytime, they walked around the streets of Nazi-occupied Voronezh. In a restricted district, they were stopped by a patrol. For a long time, they were marched through the city and then ordered to stop near a pit. Someone fired. Fyodor felt a sharp pain in his chin. His legs caved in and he fell into the pit. The SS men thought he was dead and they left. At night, he crawled out of the pit. He managed to escape and make his way back. Fyodor was put into a hospital. There, his mother found him and carried him off to the deep rear. A scar on his neck and a medal for victory over Nazi Germany remained as tangible mementos of the war. His aim in life had been clear since the age of 10. At 19, he had lost none of his enthusiasm, but the road to its attainment was uncertain. In 1943, Fyodor Tistov arrived in Moscow, too late to apply for admission to the Aviation Institute. Friends advised him to try for the famous Moscow Higher Technical School. He did and was admitted. In college, Fyodor threw himself into the study of mechanics and physics. He cut classes in some subjects altogether. If his absence was noticed, the words hold up extra food rations appeared next to his name. A war was being fought and food was rationed. Students who cut classes were dealt with harshly. Fyodor learned to deny himself many things to make the best of his time and opportunity to push toward his goal. 
After graduation, he was sent to work at a plant in Zautust. The Cosmos would have to wait until better times. After the war was over, Fyaktistov enrolled in the Bauman Moscow Higher Technical School as an engineering student, and he graduated in 1949. Fyaktistov also later earned a doctorate in physics. He joined the OKB, and in 1955, he formed part of the team that went on to design the Sputnik satellites, the Vostok spacecraft, and the Voskhod spacecraft. In 1961, preparations were underway for the first manned space flight. Vyaktistov presented himself as a candidate. However, Chief Designer Korolev turned down his offer. Vyaktistov repeated his request before every new flight until his perseverance was rewarded. In 1964, the engineer was selected for the crew of Vosku 1. But, to Fyaktistov, the Voskhod flight was only a prelude to his lunar flight. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.